Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. So listen, this morning's sermon is going to be part two from the Lord's Prayer. This is a sermon series that is going to last six weeks. Not all of the sermons will be from the Lord's Prayer, but this will be kind of part two as I'm preaching through this series. Now, before I hop into the sermon, I wanted to share with you an experience that I had this morning. So this morning I got up. When I got up, I had caught the score of the UVA football game sometime after halftime. And um, I ended up getting busy with something else, and I went to bed. So I got up this morning, and I asked Siri what the score was. Now, for those of you who maybe aren't technological, Siri is the voice command lady that you utilize in your iPhone. Pick it up, Siri, ask a question. She's all-knowing. And so I asked her. I said, what was the score of the UVA football game? And I quote, here's what Siri said. You ready? UVA was subjugated. In the South's oldest rivalry, 59 to 39, subjugated. Couldn't believe it, so I asked her again. This time she said, UVA was crushed in the South's oldest rivalry, 59 to 39. Full confession, I kind of knew what subjugated mean, but I wasn't positive, so I looked it up. Here's the definition, subjugate. Bring under domination or control, especially by conquest. Gets more painful as you read. Synonyms, vanquish, conquer, dominate, quell, quash, and crush. I never knew Siri was a North Carolina fan. I had no idea that that was the case, but I rebuked her quietly and put her down. Look, how you say something matters. All she had to say was UVA lost, give the score, but she didn't. She was asked a question, and she used the word subjugated. It's a powerful word. Interestingly enough, the Lord's Prayer appears twice in Scripture. Once in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is casting the vision for his new kingdom. By the way, Moses was given the law on a mountain, and that cast the vision for that community. Jesus is now giving the Sermon on the mountain. He's up there casting a vision for the kingdom he's going to usher in. That's what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. In the midst of it, Jesus talks about prayer. Now, before we get to the Lord's Prayer again, I just wanted to remind us of a couple of things I made mention of last week. First of all, the purpose for this sermon series, that city church would be more prayerful and Charlottesville would become more prayer-filled, putting it another way that you and I would be more prayerful and the world around us would become more prayer-filled. Because I think it stands to reason for followers of Jesus, when something is prayer-filled, it will be better than it being prayerless. How many of you believe that's true? It's pretty simple. Now, the other thing that I mentioned last week that I believe is true after three decades of being a pastor, here's what I believe. Prayer seems to change the prayer 
as much, if not more than, what is being prayed for. In other words, here's what I've found. People that pray get transformed. Oftentimes, what we pray for or what they pray for doesn't really have a quantum shift, but here's what I believe, that when you pray, something happens to you. And the last thought from last week that's important for this week is this. You are a part of the answer to every prayer you pray. You are a part of the answer to every prayer you pray. J. Robert Ashcroft, who was someone that I was able to sit under for a brief period of time, his son became attorney general, taught us that, and literally it ruined my prayer life. Because as I mentioned last week, I like Jesus hand grenades. What are those? That's when you pray a prayer over the wall, you throw it, and you walk away. And he taught us that in the kingdom, you can't do that. When you pray a prayer, you are committing to being a part of the answer to the prayer. Now, what I want us to do is we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together. I know you were just seated. This is Christian calisthenics at home or in the sanctuary. Stand. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer, then you can be seated again. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer. This is then how you should pray. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You may be seated. Jesus, as he casts this new vision for his kingdom that he's ushering into the world, brings to us a prayer. As a Jew, he already had a prayer. Prayer, it was called the Shema. I talked about this last week. The Shema was prayed two times every day by every Jewish person. But Jesus now ushers in a new prayer. Not going to go into depth, but please listen to last week's sermon. What I also talked about last week is if you look at the Lord's Prayer, there's a shift from the beginning part to the second part. The first section is prayer where we say to God, your name, your kingdom, your will. But then a shift happens. In the second section, the prayer goes, give us, forgive us, and lead us. So there is a shift. This sermon is about that shift. Where we go from your kingdom come in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to where then we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I have a very deep, profound question. What does every kingdom have? A king. Very good. Most of us in the Western world do not view Jesus as king. We don't. Because we grew up in a democratic society. You get to vote on everything, including who leads you. Not so in a kingdom. In a kingdom, you have a king. By the way, next year, the entire year, we're going to look at the kingdom of God and what it means. Because the gospel of Jesus was the announcement that the kingdom of God was at hand. That's the gospel. So we're going to look at that all next year. But suffice it to say that the kingdom of God has a king, and the gospels have been trying to convince us it's Jesus. Let me show you. 
we read Matthew 6.10. Well, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 talks about the birth of Jesus. Here's how it's presented. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of... There's always more than one king, and there's always other kingdoms. Never forget that. Reading on. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born? King of the Jews. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus was born as a king. Not only this, Jesus dies as a king. Matthew 27, 29. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. John chapter 19, verse 15, repeats this. During Jesus' trial, it says, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. And then his crucifixion. Luke 19, 18 to 22. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. So any language you read, you could read this. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, like every king does, what I have written, I've written. You don't vote. It is what it is. Please understand that the Newer Testament wants you to understand that Herod Pilate and the religious leaders knew that Jesus was a king. They knew it, and that's why they kill him. He's a king. Now, let's take a look now at the Lord's Prayer. King Jesus is now teaching the kingly prayer for his kingdom. And in verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His standing there is the evidence that that has begun. If Jesus is the king and the kingdom of God is stepping into the world, now the kingdom of God is here because Jesus is. He's the king. The kingdom goes where the king goes. That's how it works. And so what we discover now is Jesus is teaching a prayer, and in the prayer we are called to pray, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how do we put feet to our faith with the Lord's prayer or Jesus's kingly prayer? How do we put feet to our faith? First of all, remember what we said at the beginning. J. Robert Ascroft said this, you are part of the answer to every prayer you pray. So if you pray the Lord's prayer and you follow Jesus, guess what? You are part of the answer to that prayer. The kingdom of God coming into this world involves you and me as followers of Jesus. 
God's vision is that there would be a kingdom of people who have no succinct nationality, who don't speak just one language, but a group of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are serving the king, and it's in and through their lives that the kingdom of God advances. It's about the kingdom. And so if we are part of the answer to every prayer that we pray, then every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, that involves us. It involves us. Now, what I want to do, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, is I want to talk about the transition between your name, your will, and your kingdom to where now Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus gives us the prayer we're to pray for ourselves. And what a letdown. Here it is. Give us today our daily bread. You know what I want to pray for? I want to pray to dominate the world. I want to pray for domination because if Jesus is king and his kingdom has come and I'm in his kingdom, man, that's what I want. Jesus doesn't do that. He prays the most, he teaches us to pray the most important phrase a person can learn. Give us this day our daily bread. It's got to be more than it seems, and it does. That phrase where we shift from the invasion of God's kingdom in the world to where we pray this such simple prayer, give us today our daily bread. Now, here's what's fascinating. The Greek word for daily bread is only found here in all of the Bible and in all of Greek literature. It's found nowhere else. The Greek word is epiuson. It's only found here. And the interesting thing is, biblical scholars aren't sure exactly what it means. Not sure. But what I did here was, is I just simply went to the New American Standard Dictionary and I looked at the root to the Greek word for daily bread. And notice what it says. It's a cognate of apusa, which means the next day, the following day, or the coming day. The greatest and sharpest biblical scholars of our day will tell you that the Lord's Prayer really should say, give us today tomorrow's bread. Give us today tomorrow's bread. What in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, we know at the time of Jesus, daily bread meant the basic sustenance to survive. That's what it meant. Now, the truth of it is, I was raised in a home, and my mom always watches this, so thank you, mom, for this. But uh, my mom was a baker, and she baked bread. She basically baked two kinds of bread. One was whole wheat bread, and the other was sourdough bread. Whole wheat bread, she would get the flour out, and she would, it looked like horse feed, and she would mix it together, and you'd go to eat it because it was really healthy. How many of you ever noticed bread that's healthy tastes horrible? You ever noticed that? It's just true. It's like a spiritual law. So she would make these, this whole wheat bread, and you'd chew on it, take all the water out of your mouth, and it just, but sourdough bread was awesome. 
She had this little fermenting jar, and she, I forget all she did. She'd add something to it, and it would fester and become a chemical experiment, and then she'd bake it. It was way better than whole wheat bread. But my mom's specialty to this day were what were called cheese rolls. There are these clover. If you look, it looks like a three-leaf clover, and you bake them in the oven, and then you pull them apart, and they're full of cheese, and you put butter on them. And that, by the way, has been the price of admission for my mother to see her grandkids ever since my son was born. You want to see the grandkids, you're bringing cheese rolls. No cheese rolls, no grandkids. And she would bring bags of them, and we'd put them in the freezer, and people would eat them, and we'd give them to the best of our friends. And then you'd fight over the last two. Here's the thing, though. The prayer is, dear God, help us to believe you for tomorrow's bread. And there's a biblical way to read the Bible that's called the law of first mention. So if you read something and you don't know what it means, what you do as a biblical scholar is you think, where was bread first mentioned? Where is daily bread first mentioned? You have to go there. And where was daily bread kind of first talked about? It's actually in the book of Exodus. It's where the children of Israel have now escaped from slavery and they're in the wilderness and they're hungry and they begin to turn on God and Moses. And they say, you've brought us out here to die. It would have been better to stay in Egypt. And then the text tells us, in Exodus 14, 4 through 6, here's how God responds. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from where? Ah, this starts sounding familiar. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this, I'm going to test them. In other words, there's going to be daily bread. And you get enough just for that day. But then we read in Exodus 16, 17 through 20, it said the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it out by Omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. And everyone gathered just as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However... Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept, uh, they kept part of it until morning, but it, it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry. So the idea here is, is God comes to his people and says this, I will take care of your daily needs. Do not store up for today stuff for tomorrow. You're going to learn to trust me. And what do the people do? Some trust but a whole lot of people gather a whole lot extra because they can't trust God. And they store it. And the text tells us there was a stench throughout the camp. It reeked. And Moses gets up and rebukes the people. He says, what have you done? Now, if you begin to think about the story of the manna, you begin to realize tomorrow's bread makes sense. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The next prayer is not for world domination. The next prayer is this. Give us today the epiusome bread. Give us today tomorrow's bread. Teach us to trust you. Most people 
struggle with anxiety and fear. A lot of people are full of anxiety. Tell me this isn't the most important prayer you could pray. That you would learn every day to pray this prayer and in doing so you trust God. You have enough for today but you're going to trust him for tomorrow's bread even before it's there. Here's what happens to people that don't trust God for tomorrow's bread. They cease to be generous, they cease to be kind, and they hoard. That's antithetical to the kingdom of God. Now listen, I hoard one thing. Can I be full confession? That's expensive chocolate. I get a lot of it, and I keep it for myself. And I hide it underneath Hershey's chocolate bars, which are just wax, basically. And here's why. My family does not appreciate good chocolate. So why in the world would I give Belgian chocolate to my kids when they want chocolate? I give them those little Hershey's chocolate chips. They're about a dollar for 50 pounds, and the stuff that I like is like 50 pounds an ounce. So why in the world would I give that to them if they don't really appreciate it? Listen, I want to be clear. One of the biggest battles of human life is to believe that there will be enough tomorrow when tomorrow comes. And the Lord's Prayer is a call for the people in the kingdom to believe that that's true. You will cease to be generous if you believe tomorrow won't have enough. You will cease to be kind if you believe that tomorrow won't have enough. You will live with an anxious, selfish presence. It will be like me with the good chocolate. You'll hoard it. You'll hide it. You'll guard and protect your heart. You'll cover up. But people in the kingdom of Jesus that have learned to believe that God has enough and God will supply and he will take care of my basic needs, when I believe that, then I will be generous. When I believe that God will give me the trust today for tomorrow's bread. It's not here yet, but I believe in a God and I'm in a kingdom where the promise is this God is going to supply. Jesus teaches on this over and over. He says, look at the sparrows. Don't they have enough to eat? Why are you so anxious? God knows what they have need of and God knows what you need and you're more important than they are. This has been part of the human condition for years. So I have an encouragement, I have a challenge, that if you're the type of person that lives with an anxious presence, if you're the type of person that it's not our bread, it's my bread, give us this day our bread. It belongs to the community. It's not just yours. But we many times live as though give us today my bread. It's mine. And here's the biggest challenge, and the Bible warns of this. Usually at the beginning when we're in need, we cry out to God, help me. God does. But the warning of the text is this. The more I have, the more I believe it's mine. 
It's not ours. It's mine, and I worked for it. The Lord's Prayer calls you to move away from that. That's not how the kingdom functions. The kingdom of God is filled with people that believe every good thing comes from God, and he blessed me with it. It's his blessing. But the warning of the text is, the more you have, the harder it is to believe that God's the one that gave it to you, and you can begin to live as though it's yours. It's not ours. So the principle of the kingdom is found in the Lord's Prayer, and it's this. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day the trust for tomorrow's bread so that I will live today not in anxiety and fear and in worry, but I can live in the present filled with joy and truly be present here and now because there's this God that I serve. And if he could feed a million people raining bread from heaven in the wilderness, he's a God that can take care of me too. And so I can live freed up to live fully as God intended. Can we stand together? Let's close our eyes. If you are an anxious person, if you find yourself often captured by worry, I want to encourage you to begin to do something. When you feel that coming on, sit there in class and pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give me the trust to believe for tomorrow's bread now. That you've got this, God, and I can trust you. God, help us to be women and men who are a people of trust, where we don't take all the manna today and hoard it for tomorrow, but we're generous, we're kind, and we're freed up. If you're an anxious person, I would encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray it together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today tomorrow's bread. 